Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of So Important, Series 2. We've been on hiatus for a while. Life has a way of sometimes kicking the fun stuff, like producing this podcast, to the back burner. I took on a number of new responsibilities this past year, and I made the decision that the best thing to do was to put the podcast on hold so I could focus on some of these important priorities without sacrificing the quality of this podcast. But I am back with many new guests and featuring all the things you've come to love about this podcast, a broad range of individuals talking about diverse and always fascinating topics. And today, we're kicking off our new series with a very special guest. That individual is Dr. Brian O'Rourke, a professor at Robert Morris University in Allegheny County, right outside of my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dr. Rourke is a university professor of economics at RMU with a long resume of achievement and recognition as an exemplary professor and educator. Brian has written dozens of scholarly articles along with a seminal economics textbook that is widely used in the field today. What we are going to talk about, though, is a particular approach to teaching and understanding economics that Brian has pioneered, which is fascinating to scholars and laymen alike. Superhero Economics, which is about what superheroes can teach us about economics. He edited a book on the topic, and its title tells the tale, The Shadowy World of Capes, Masks, and Invisible Hands, a collection of essays examining the economics of particular heroes and their environment. Dr. Rourke, welcome to the show. Wow, thanks a lot, Monty. It is uh, just a pleasure to be here you know, talking to someone from Pittsburgh and uh, talking about something I really enjoy, which are, well, two things really, which is economics and superheroes. Well, I'm really excited to to uh, talk with you and I can hear the Pittsburgh in your voice. So that's very reassuring and comforting. And perhaps one reason that I'm attracted to the topic is that back in the day, I was an avid comic book collector and I still have an interest in the field, but I never thought about it from the perspective of economics. So why don't I turn the mic over to you, and you can tell us how you came to this topic and give us a little overview of what it's all about. This is one of those uh, things that you never, when you go to grad school, you don't think you're going to be making these connections between any kind of pop culture, really, and economics. You kind of go to graduate school and you think, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be this great uh, policy genius, or um, I'm going to solve the world's problems when it comes to a variety of, of specifically economic things. And, and you don't, they don't teach you in graduate school how to make connections between these really well, sometimes complicated ideas of, in economics and, and things that people deal with on a regular basis. If you look at the world of pop culture, whether it's music, whether it's movies, whether it's um, TV shows, whether it's comic books, underpinning a lot of that is something just hardcore economic. You, know, you listen to uh, to rap music or you listen to country music and and you can pick it up pretty quickly. There is, you know, somebody has lost their job or somebody is um, just has no income or you know there are there are crimes on the street and and you you sort of start to see that in in our lives and and in the pop culture that we enjoy there's this economic undercurrent which without it takes away some of the poignancy of the story. So I'm in a class one day. I got I tend to get to class 15 or 20 minutes early just to set up the technology and make sure everything's ready to go for class. And two students who tended to be there not quite as early as I 
I got in, but they were, they would get there early and they were clearly friends because they were always, you know, talking about something that had gone on in their lives recently. Well, these two students were talking about a TV show that they had been watching, a show I'd never heard of before. Um, it was on the WB network, which is a network that is not one that I tend to watch all that often. And they're carrying on this conversation and I couldn't help but overhear because the experiences of the characters sounded so economic to me. And I stopped them for a second. I said, what are you watching? And they told me it was the Arrow TV show on the WB network. I know the Green Arrow from his rare appearances on the Super Friends on Saturday morning cartoons. I, I may need to start watching this show because if, if what they are telling me of this one episode contains as much economics as I'm hearing them describe, there's got to be a lot more there. So I started watching the show. My kids started watching with me. My wife starts watching and we love the show. And I start to pick out these, these little bits of economics, in some cases, these chunks of economic content within the show. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. And so we start, we, we watched that series. We started watching The Flash. And it was another one of these moments where it was like, oh my golly, they're talking about economics and the problems that the characters are dealing with are, you know, they're not overtly economic. They're not talk, talking about making rent or what stocks they should buy, but really economics isn't about that. Economics is about fundamentally how people deal with scarcity, how people in a world of unlimited wants deal with those wants while faced with limited resources. And there are so many instances of this in the television shows that I just had to start getting into the the original material. So you know, I was a, uh, an economics and a history major as an undergrad, and my history professors never would have gone for me claiming that comic books are, are source material or original content for, um, for a historical analysis. But from an economic point of view, I'm going back to the start. I'm going back to the to the origin stories of these heroes. I'm going to start to read as many of those older comics as I can get my hands on and see if I can start to, to piece together some economic stories that help to explain some of what's going on in these comics. About that time, DC starts running trailers for this movie, Batman versus Superman. And my wife is watching this and she says, what is going on here? I thought these guys were friends. Why are they fighting? And I thought to myself, you know what? If I have two people who come along who should be friends and are fighting, I should be able to, to, to dig up an explanation for that. I thought about it for a couple of days and I think I had it. So the next time that trailer came on I, and my wife was still confused, why are they fighting? I said, well, I could explain it to you one of two ways. I could explain it to you based on the comic way, or I, could, I think I can explain it to you from an economic perspective. Of course, she chose the comic way. She did not want to hear the economic perspective on this. But the economic angle is a sound theoretical explanation for why people do things that at first don't seem like it's in their best interest. And at that point, I thought, all right, I'm going to start to pull in some other pieces here and, and, and see if there are other peculiar things in the comics that I can explain from an economic point of view. And I ended up with about eight or nine or 10 of these things that helped us to, that, that allowed me to, to now bring in an economist's point of view on why, why these episodes that seem, that seem so odd to comic readers can be explained and actually promote the story. So how would you define superhero economics? Ah, so superhero economics is studying the way 
people with the abilities to overcome scarcity in unique ways still have to deal with these limited resources or or maybe put another way how do what are the common ways that superheroes and us mere mortals overcome the same problems and another thing that you talk about is opportunity cost because hmm. you discuss how every time the superhero makes a decision, then there's a cost to that decision at the same time. So a choice has to be made. One of the classic illustrations of opportunity cost is Spider-Man. I, I used to give Spider-Man the short end of the stick, I, I think partly because I, I remember watching those cartoons on Saturday morning and thinking, eh, this is kind of kind of cheesy. But Peter Parker's story is, you know, it's so typically high school until he gets his superpowers, and then it becomes so typically human. It's it's just a wonderful story. And, and so in the case of Peter Parker, he's got this superpower. He also has this kind of guilty mentality that, you know, I've got this power and I've got to take advantage of it. It's that kind of with great power comes great responsibility trope. And so he's trying to live up to this expectation. And to do that, he's got to give up a number of things that he would really like to do. So whether it is um, going on a date with Mary Jane or whether it is helping, you know, getting a job to help Aunt May pay the rent or keeping his grades up or taking a job or taking an internship, he is faced with these choices. And when he chooses to be Spider-Man and when he chooses to go out and, and help the little guy, he's necessarily giving up these these other things that a normal teenager would be doing and a normal teenager wouldn't think twice about doing because a normal teenager doesn't have the superpowers that Peter Parker has. Opportunity costs are just a natural reaction and a natural result of having to choose. And the opportunity cost is your next best option. So if Peter Parker's got it, he's got a date lined up with Mary Jane and then the Green Goblin comes, you know, tearing through uh, Queens and starts, you know, he's lobbing pumpkin bombs all over the place. And Peter says, I've got to go stop this guy. And he has to break his date with Mary Jane. Well, the opportunity cost for Peter is that date because now he's going to do something else because he's got this great power and this great responsibility. And, and so many superheroes, at some point, they get fed up. The Spider-Man quitting cover is, is one of the most famous, certainly in the Spider-Man catalog. Um, but just about every other superhero has quit sometime. Wonder Woman's quit, Superman's quit, Iron Man's quit, Green Lantern has quit. And I've got this file on uh, on my computer of all these covers of, you know, basically, they're all titled the same, I quit. And it's these superheroes who have just gotten to a point where they say, the opportunity cost is too much. I'm not going to be the superhero anymore. I have to give up too many other things. That's something that's powerful that connects us to superheroes, because we, we may not have to give up our superpowers or being a superhero, but Anytime we make a choice, we have to give up something. Our time together here on the podcast, there's I'm sure there's something you could be doing. I'm looking outside. It's the first day in a week we haven't had rain. And I'm thinking, man, I got some yard work I could be doing. But that's my opportunity cost. And um, when we make choices, we hope by informing and, and, and teaching people about opportunity costs, we hope that they make the choice that has the lowest opportunity cost. When your students hear this, what kind of response do you get? I get a lot of students who are incredibly appreciative. One of the one of the classes I teach is an econ for non-business, non-econ majors. And at Robert Morris, everybody has to take economics. If you're in the business school, you take the, the typical micro and macro course. Um, if you're not, then you take this, we call it a survey of economics. So 
you know, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. Honestly, students are terrified of this class. It's required. They've heard horror stories. They have friends and family and parents who have taken econ and it's gone badly for them. So when I introduce my class in the first day of class, I ask them what superpower they would like to have. There are certainly some, some quizzical looks, but as they start to see what the point of that is, and, and we do some exercises and, and we say, why does Batman hire Robin? And when we're looking at economic growth, let's look at the opening scene from the Black Panther movie. It puts them at ease because they are now dealing with a subject that's utterly foreign to them, but in a context that's much more comfortable. Almost every student I've ever had has seen at least one of the Marvel movies. And they all know who Superman is, and they all know who Wonder Woman is, and they've all heard of Spider-Man and probably seen one of the Spider-Man movies. And so now they're thinking, well, economics can't be as difficult as I think it is if I'm being taught through the prism of superheroes. If for most of my students, it is a it is a way to put them in a comfort zone. Some of the stu- some of the students are kind of like, eh, yeah, superhero stuff. It's kind of kid stuff. Of course, when they find out how much money the movies make, they that you know that changes their tune a little bit. Well, if I had a chance to take your class, I would be the first one to sign up because I did take a couple economics courses back in the day, and I always felt overwhelmed from beginning to end. But I think what you're saying would help me understand it and relate to it in a much better way than anything I was taught when I was in school. Well, and that's that's really the hope that um, you know that I can introduce a generation of of college students to economics and. When they are asked what their, you know, about the, their economic experience, they won't give the same response that, that I hear so often. You know, I'll talk to people and they ask, well, what do you do? I say, well, I teach economics. And the reaction is, oh, you know, it's a groan. And I'm like, oh, man, that just means that somebody missed an opportunity to, to teach you economics in an exciting and engaging way. Well, the thing is, I always loved economics. I just mm-hmm. could never get a grasp of it, but I always could see the importance. I always valued it. And I'm sure that this has a very salutary effect on lots and lots of students. I get a lot of good feedback from, from them, you know, you know, basically saying what you're, what you're saying. It's, you know, it's something that I never would have put these two things together. And it helped me to grasp some of these basic concepts. And, and the, the other thing, sometimes I feel a little bit bad. You know, I, I do use a lot of different pop culture in my classes. And I have had students come back to me and say, I can't listen to that artist or I can't watch that movie or I can't read that comic the same way anymore because now all I do is I think about the economics in it. All right, well, then I've done my job. One thing I noticed is that people love to go back to the Batman and Joker. What do you think might be the reason why that particular relationship seems to resonate so strongly with people in this context that we're talking about? Those two characters have a curious sort of symbiotic relationship. One of the things that I've explored in the economics of superheroes is what's up with the criminals? The criminals keep coming back over and over and over again. And Joker is a a prime example of that. And they never win or they very seldom win. What would motivate someone to keep trying and trying? It's almost like you're just running your head, you know, you're battering your head against a wall with no hope of knocking the wall down. So from, a, from an economic point of view, there's a couple things going on in the economics of crime and the literature on the economics of crime that we can apply to the economics of superheroes. One of the, one of the things is that whenever you have a system where the criminal can become so famous for beating the superhero, 
it's something we refer to in economics as a tournament theory, where there's a huge first place prize for whoever knocks the hero off the off the mountaintop. They kind of go down in criminal lore for the rest of time. You know, the second place, this third place, they, they don't count at all. And Joker is like that first place villain who, of all of the people Batman fight against, if anyone's going to beat Batman, it's going to be Joker. In fact, there are there are parts in uh, in the um, in the Batman comics and in the Joker comics and some of the spinoff series where Joker will he'll attack other criminals if he thinks they're going to knock Batman off. He's like, that's not going to happen. It's going to be me who takes Batman down. So there's this super great enormous prize for Joker if he wins. And everybody else gets, you know, a set of steak knives and, you know, and a, a parting gift. You know, nobody really thinks of, of the toy man as knocking off Batman. You know, one of these like super B list or C list villains. That, that's not, if that would happen, no one would believe it. It just wouldn't be, it wouldn't really be accepted by your readers. It's got to be Joker. Yeah, exactly. It's got to be Joker. Yeah. So, so they're in this tournament or Joker's in this tournament and he's going to make sure that if anyone's going to knock him off, I win. I get the, I get the, the prize at the end of the day. Such an interesting pairing. You, know, you do run the risk of, you know, as storytellers, as of overdoing that at some point, perhaps. But you always know when Joker shows up, something something bad's going to go down, and um, and you wonder, you know, is th- is this the time that Joker kind of finally, you know, gets the pardon the pun, the, the last laugh on Batman? It's a system where there's no negative consequences for bad actions. In fact, we we call that uh, a moral hazard problem in economics. Um, you know, if if a bank engages in, in very risky lending and they get bailed out, they don't have the same incentive now to to take care in the future. That's what we call a moral hazard. And so, if a criminal commits a crime in the comic world, they go to jail for a short period of time. They don't really pay their debt to society. You know, why not keep committing crimes? What I want to do is just talk about one other concept that you raise in in some of your writings, which is this idea of a duopoly. Oh. I guess I'm putting on my comic book fan hat just for a moment. When I grew up, it was always DC and Marvel. And you could see how, you know, they, you know, one guy, one would introduce a hero and the other would introduce a similar kind of hero. And they would, you know, and you could see that they were very much aware of what the other was doing. And if one raised their price by two cents, the other would raise their price by two cents. It was clear that they were going at it and they each had their own little niche. But at the same time, there was almost a cooperation. I mean, they knew that they were the two, two head honchos and the Charlestons and all the others came and came and went. But in the end, it was DC and uh, Marvel. And you refer to that as the uh, duopoly. Yeah. this So a duopoly is like a two-firm monopoly. So the, these are the two big firms. And they really, because they're so big and powerful, they can control the market. And there is that sense of competition, to be sure. And they were, there would be these these times where you know the, the two big companies were trying to steal each other's writers. And there's that idea of a fierce competition between the two big firms. But there's also the ability of those two big firms to squeeze out any any other smaller competition, and every so often they act in concert. So the two firms are like, "Hey, you know, we could maybe undercut all of these other small publishers and drive them out of business. Then we raise our rates, and and so you see the rates of books move in parallel to each other. It's not uncommon to see that, but." You sort of wish that because of what they're producing, you, you kind of wish that, man, it would be great if they were just so independent of each other that it wouldn't matter what the other side does. 
that they don't behave in this in this way that maybe we expect from, say, um, you know, Boeing and Airbus. But why don't they just want everybody to have a great experience in the comic world? But well, it's because it's a business too. You know, there's that business side of things, and and they want to they want to be able to cover their costs and they hopefully make a little bit of profit on the side. So um, you see the attempts of, of firms to, of these two comic book companies really to, I'm not, they're not going to be able to drive each other out of business, but if we could drive everybody else out of business, then that, that would be just fine. And, um, and that's, that's how it was for years and years and years. Yeah. I think it's loosened up a little bit in the last decade. You can publish your comics now a lot easier than you could before. And distribution is a lot different than it used to be. One of the um, sources of new comics seems to be coming out of Africa. You know, DC and Marvel, they can maybe buy those publishers or the folks who are doing that can just publish their stuff online and you know have the world at their fingertips. It's a lot It's a lot different than it used to. Well, I mean, we see this in publishing of any kind, really. Well, but if there's any lesson from the last decade or so, it's that you can't control the media. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that is true. Yes, indeed. This was a wonderful conversation, and I think we no, covered quite a bit. We covered yeah. a lot, but you're never going to cover everything, which is another yeah. great thing. I, I go to conferences, and I, I do presentations, and I talk about this in class, and it never fails. Somebody comes up, have you thought about this? And the, my answer is, no, I haven't, but let's you know talk to me about it because it sounds fascinating. Well, I can assure you, I will be one of those people who will never be able to read a comic book in the same light again. So thank you so much for joining me for this time. And it was really fun to chat with you. And I really appreciate you spending a little time with us. It's always my pleasure, Monty. And, and thanks for asking me on. And yeah, anytime you want to talk again, let me know. All right. So thank you very much. And uh, look forward to, to learning more about superhero economics.